This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Talking, of course, about the coronavirus pandemic. Are we taking some steps backwards in fighting COVID? Johnson & Johnson stopping the advanced clinical trials of its vaccine, an unexplained illness in one of the volunteers, so they've hit pause. And then Eli Lilly pausing its trial of an antibody treatment for safety reasons not explained yet. So we'll get into whether we should worry or if this is just a speed bump in the normal process. And also developing a vaccine, you know, that may just be the easy part. And I'm kind of joking about it being easy. It's not. But In relative terms, it may be, because getting millions of doses made and distributed, a whole other story. Doctors find a way to keep an eye on COVID patients while making sure the hospitals don't get overrun, so we'll talk about that. Oh, if you thought that President Trump and Dr. Anthony Fauci once had a bromance going, it's over. Nothing lasts forever. Uh Can you travel safely over the holidays, visit family and friends with a pandemic going on? We will talk about that as well. But let's get back to uh, the vaccine and treatment setbacks. Do we have a long way to go? Jonathan Kimmelman is a bioethicist and director of the Division of Ethics and Policy at McGill University in Canada, where he studies clinical drug trials. Jonathan, is it the expectation of big things and big things quickly that make this news particularly disappointing? Yeah, I mean, I think... Drug development under the best of circumstances is incredibly difficult. We often encounter safety issues. We often find a drug or a vaccine isn't quite as effective in patients as it was in animals or in early phase trials. I think what's different here is that there's a lot of scrutiny, a lot of people that are watching these developments, and a lot of expectations about uh, these vaccines delivering on what they promise. So after something like this happens, and we can take the Johnson & Johnson case as the latest, uh, how long until you get back on track, if you can? It's hard to say. It varies. Uh, First, Johnson & Johnson and whatever monitoring committees are overseeing those trials really need to make an assessment about whether there's likely a, a cause and effect relationship between their vaccine and these safety events, that can be really, really tricky to figure out. Oftentimes, this study might be redesigned a little bit so that there's extra careful monitoring to see whether or not those safety signals arise again. Uh, But it's not uncommon to put a pause, figure out what's going on, and to restart the trial with extra monitoring to make sure this isn't happening again. Well, let me ask you about transparency. Uh, And I know that These trials are designed to be conducted a certain way traditionally, and I'm using the word traditionally deliberately because these are far from traditional times. So because these are not traditional times, is there an obligation on the part of Johnson & Johnson with its vaccine, on the part of Eli Lilly with its uh, antibody therapeutic, to be very transparent and upfront with the public about what the nature of these unexplained illnesses are. I get that they don't have to identify the person, but what is it that they're looking at? How serious are these events and what are they actually doing? Yeah, I think it's really important to maintain transparency. So uh, there's many different vaccine development efforts that are underway, and it's really critical that these other parallel vaccine development efforts can learn from whatever challenges are arising 
uh, with companies that are pursuing similar kinds of platforms. So for example, Johnson & Johnson's particular vaccine candidate is similar to other vaccine candidates that are being tested. Are we seeing the same kinds of safety events emerging? So I think that's one reason we can learn the quickest if we are sharing results uh, as widely as possible. I think the other issue that's at stake here is fostering public trust. I think the more that you level with the public about some of the challenges and some of the safety concerns, the more likely you are to garner the kind of trust that you're going to need from the public to actually deploy these vaccines successfully. Differences that you see between Johnson & Johnson and Eli Lilly, obviously we have the vaccine, which is, you know, you hope to get, what, 30, 40, 50,000 people and you're giving placebos. And then the Eli Lilly is supposed to be used in addition to remdesivir. So this would be used for people who are sick right now. Uh, correct. Yeah, it's a, it's a different kind of one is a treatment approach and the others are vaccine or preventive approaches. So is it harder or easier to know if there's a problem to differentiate when you have these different numbers between what's a real concern and what's noise when you look at the two different things these are going to be used for? It's challenging in both cases. It's probably a little bit more challenging with a vaccine because with the vaccines, you have a lot of healthy volunteers, but a massive number of patients. And if you just take a random sample of, of, of healthy volunteers, give them all placebo, there are going to be safety issues that pop up. I mean, people get cancer diagnoses or MS diagnoses or other kinds of diagnoses all the time. So it can be really, really tricky with that large a sample to really attribute cause unless you start getting a pattern. Jonathan Kimmelman, bioethicist, director of the Division of Ethics and Policy at McGill University. Drug makers are now testing whether their vaccines work. If all goes well and the FDA signs off on things, the hard part begins. Yeah, you got to get it manufactured and distributed. Dr. Gregory Poland, director of the Vaccine Research Group at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, doctor, it's not true, is it, that people are just going to get the vaccine? It's like a light switch. We can go back to normal right away. No, it's it's probably not true at all. In fact, as I described it, it's not it's not a light switch. It's a rheostat, and and what I mean by that is carefully controlled clinical trials are happening now. We might see a vaccine released under emergency use authorization by the end of the year, followed over the next months by one after another of other vaccines being licensed but they're being studied in different ways. Different vaccines are meant for different kinds of people. We still need to know a lot about safety. And then if you want, we can talk about the distribution and allocation and manufacturing. There's a host of complex logistical details that have to happen in a carefully choreographed sequence before you know, John Q. Public gets a vaccine in the arm. Well, uh, doctor, I mean, we've all seen how swell things have been going in this country with things like testing and contact tracing the complexity of rolling out multiple vaccines for brand new disease. Uh, are we even capable of pulling it off? You know, I mean, that that remains to be seen. It's a, it's a valid question. My sense is yes. I do think we're going to learn things from this. I mean, Remember that we have never developed this many vaccines in this short a period of time, licensed them in the midst of a pandemic. So lots to learn here. Let's talk about effectiveness and what they're actually shooting for. 
Um, we mentioned maybe the early one is different and it gets out first, but the later vaccines, maybe they could be better. Or does your effectiveness in your study even match the effectiveness out in the real world? Yeah, that's a really key point. So uh, in regard to that latter question, the answer is no. In a clinical trial, the people that are admitted into the trial have to meet a variety of inclusion and exclusion criteria. So they don't look like what the general population looks like. For example, the oldest of the old will probably not be studied. Pregnant women are not being studied. Children are not being studied. Highly immunocompromised people aren't being studied. Unstable diabetics are not being studied. So, so in those ways, they, the public doesn't reflect the study population. Now, efficacy is a, is, a, is a little bit difficult to discuss. Let me try here. So let's say we had a vaccine that was 70% effective, okay? Not a home run, but 90% of the population took it, we could probably reach herd immunity. If we had a 90% effective vaccine, but only 10% of the population took it, we won't reach herd immunity. So there's this balance between the efficacy of the vaccine and the population coverage of that vaccine that together determine, have we created a safe society in terms of herd immunity? But if we have, as it appears we might uh, over the next half year or so, not one, not two, but maybe three, four, five different approved vaccines, maybe more than than that, uh, how do doctors know which one works the best because they're not being tested against one another? You know, that's that's a really insightful comment. And, you know, as designed, the desire was that all of these vaccines would be studied at the same time using the same protocols, independent statisticians, independent data monitoring safety boards, so we would know exactly the the answer to the question you're asking. In fact, that is rarely, if ever done with any vaccine, though I think it would be the best way to do it uh, in the context of, of, of our current pandemic. So what's gonna happen, in fact, I gave an interview where I said, first the vaccine, then chaos and confusion. Because let me, let me just kind of play it out. Vaccine A gets released first. It's 50% effective, but 70% of people, you know, have a fever, sore arm, you know, whatever it is. A month later, vaccine B gets released. It's 80% effective and only 30% of people have local reactions. Month after that, vaccine C, it's 80% effective, but only 10% of people have any kind of, you know, ill reaction to it. So, and, and so on, you get the idea behind it. So what will happen? I think the public won't know. These are new vaccine platforms that they don't understand at all. And many providers will not know. So there's a lot of education that has to occur that hasn't quite occurred uh, yet. There are certainly people like myself publishing articles in the medical literature so that Physicians can, you know, learn about these, but no one knows yet which ones are going to actually be licensed. And until that time, they won't know how to use them. Dr. Gregory <laughs> Poland's Vaccine Research Group, the Mayo Clinic. 
A big concern at the start of the pandemic, whether hospitals would be overwhelmed with people suffering from COVID-19. Many doctors were wondering who to admit and who to tell to stay home and isolate. Well, they've come up with home monitoring. Yeah, people can leave the hospital sooner, which is better for the person, frees up the hospital space to avoid overcrowding, also lets doctors watch patients and see how they're recovering. Dr. Gregory Breen, pulmonologist at Inspira Medical Group, he talks about home monitoring with KYW's Matt Leon. Yes, uh, it is uh, as simple as that in terms of uh, the basics of it, but it actually involves a, a, a huge shift in how we practice medicine and how we care for patients. Uh, prompted by the by the COVID pandemic, uh, mostly. Um, so there's many facets of it, uh, other than just simple monitoring. Was this something that came about specifically because of the pandemic, or is this something you guys had been kind of easing into the equation and the pandemic has accelerated it? It would be the second, the latter. So it was something that was in place uh, previously at, at a at a low level. In fact, it was not something that I was uh, a part of or utilizing prior to the pandemic, and then the, pan- the needs uh, from the pandemic caused it to, to become exceedingly important and, and much more a part of our daily practice than it ever was before, at least for, for me personally. So kind of uh, take me inside the details here. I assume this is for patients that come to you, come to the hospital, and are discharged. Kind of, of how does it work? Who does it focus on? Stuff like that. So, I mean, I think the I think the best way to explain the program is to give an example. Um, so, I'll give you the example of, of uh, two patients that I'm caring for currently. One of them is 82 years old, a gentleman, and they're married. And the the wife is 80 years old. I won't really say their names, of course. Uh, they both were admitted with COVID uh, coronavirus infection uh, to our hospital, and they're both. Uh, getting better and about to be discharged here within the next 24 hours. So the the wife has COPD and COVID pneumonia, and the husband has COVID pneumonia as well. They are both requiring oxygen. So in the past, if if a patient presented with any type of pneumonia and were going to get discharged home, they couldn't. Uh, You could not be discharged home with oxygen therapy and a simple diagnosis of pneumonia. There had to be a chronic condition. So if you take these two patients, the the wife, I could discharge her home if she were stable and call it chronic stable COPD with pneumonia and and potentially get her oxygen at home. And, uh, And we would just, that would be the end of it. She would go home and we would follow her up in about a week. The gentleman would have to stay in the hospital. Uh, for as long as it took to wean him off oxygen because he he does not have another diagnosis. So that was part one. Part two is if we've decided, which was the case with COVID, that we were going to discharge patients home now on oxygen therapy, then how are we going to monitor them? Was it going to be safe to do it? What is going to be our comfort level sending patients home uh, in in a fashion that we never did before? So that was kind of the crux of it. And so what happens at this point is uh, a patient is stabilized. So their COVID pneumonia is uh, deemed to be as stable as it can be. And as long as they're felt to be safe for discharge, we will then provide them with equipment to monitor their oxygen at home. And then they can, you know, uh, they'll check in a few times per day, send us their oxygen levels. And those oxygen levels are monitored hour to hour, day to day, you know, day and night. 
Um, if there is a problem with their oxygen level, it gets, it gets noted, they get a phone call, and the physician gets alerted. In addition, there's a, uh, a summary uh, of what their oxygen levels are doing as, as a trend that, that comes to the physician twice a week. So I usually get those reports uh, Tuesdays and Fridays. The cool thing about it is that these reports are, go, are, are uh, entered into the electronic medical record. So as I'm seeing other patients, making my rounds, looking for lab work, I'm getting reports on patients that have been discharged. So I'm getting an up-to-date assessment of how they're doing. So there's lots of potential advantages here, but I'm sorry, go ahead. I saw, <laughs> I saw another question coming. Now, I was going to say, uh, when it comes to the monitoring, is this something that's done through a phone? Is this something that's done through the the the, the thing that's giving people oxygen? How exactly are they monitored? So they're provided with equipment that is that that has wireless capability, and uh, an oxygen sensor or, pro, or a pulse oximeter is is the, is a major part of that, and that then can be transmitted wirelessly and uh, and you know to our to our server to our computer. It's all done you know HIPAA compliantly, and so that information then is available to the physician. There have been some cases where some patients have had problems technically with the equipment, but that's really been a minority of the cases. And uh, by and large, everyone's been able to, to adapt to it, and, and we've gotten really good data from it. Coming up after this short break, tensions heat up publicly between Anthony Fauci and President Trump. President Trump and Dr. Anthony Fauci seem to have a cordial relationship when they would appear at news conferences together, but now there are issues. The Trump campaign used a clip of Fauci talking about the pandemic response that Fauci says was taken out of context. And Fauci didn't appreciate being used in the ad, wanted it taken down, said don't use me again. The president responded on Twitter, as he does, some insults thrown at the doctor. So, What's going on? Why is this happening? Dr. Amesh Adalja, senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security, doctored the president's uh, rebuke attack of Dr. Fauci, more of a rebuke against science? I think that the whole pandemic has been a rebuke of science from January until till now. And I do think that the, the rebuke of Dr. Fauci has to be thought of as the fact that there are many people in the administration that are living in some kind of bubble of unreality. And Dr. Fauci is a representative of reality, where he uses tools like reason and logic, where they're kind of based on whim and emotion. And anything that threatens their bubble, their their bubble of unreality, then becomes the enemy because that's the narrative that they want to continue to put forward. So this is a, a rebuke, not just of science, but of logic, of rationality, of reason. And it's exactly par for the course what we've seen with this administration from, from the very beginning. And it's made this pandemic much more worse than it needed to ever be. Do you think more damage gets done because of it? Or, I mean, by now, you're either in the Dr. Fauci camp or the President Trump camp, right? Uh, unfortunately, yes, but I do think it sets a bad example for everybody, all of the children learning about science. We, we usually uh, lionize our scientific heroes and our scientists. Think about Jonas Salk and when, when the polio vaccine was uh, discovered and how there was a ticker tape parade. I mean, there has been a, just a, a denigration of science and expertise where now uh, you can have, for example, doctors who exercise demons on the same scale as Dr. Fauci. That's something that happened during this pandemic. So I, I do think that there is a lot of damage that can still be done because science has become something that is now considered just another opinion. And and it's not something that is really uh, 
that, that, that people recognize that this is reflective of how people are, are, are apprehending reality. I think that has all gone out the window. And I think it's just that that's a bigger problem than, than anything we face now is this, this disrespect for reality. Well, and, and here is where more damage, I suppose, could be done, and that is eventually when, if there's a vaccine, uh, one can see a scenario where the president says this is the perfect vaccine, it's the cure for the virus, and perhaps Dr. Fauci will be far more circumspect, uh, maybe even saying something like, no, it's too early to tell, and that would cause its own unique harm, would it not? Yes, definitely. As we get through this pandemic, there are going to be many decisions that we're going to need experts like Dr. Fauci to help us navigate. And anything that undermines the public confidence in Dr. Fauci is going to be worse off, make the pandemic's response worse off, because we know that that we that people are going to have questions, legitimate questions about the vaccine, questions about drugs or questions about masks, questions about whatever it might be. And we need trusted sources of expertise. And if the president and his cronies continue to denigrate Dr. Fauci, it becomes much, much harder when we actually, when it comes to the point where you need to rely on Dr. Fauci. I mean, the, the fact is, people know that Dr. Fauci is correct. That's why the president put him in the ad, because he's actually relying on the prestige and the respect of Dr. Fauci uh, to, to buttress his own claims. What do you make of the fight over the ad? He says he was taken out of context. The campaign has come back and say, no, you were talking about the task force. And by extension, the task force means the president because he put the task force together. I do think Dr. Fauci was taken out of context. And I think it's not a you, you don't want to put a major government scientist that's an icon in infectious disease in your in your ad. Uh, in general, that's not something that we, we've seen happen before. But I do think what what Dr. Fauci was saying is a task force. Yes, it was doing a lot of great stuff, but that task force was kind of begrudgingly formed by the president after inaction in January and February, where we basically got into a situation where there were cases in this country and undetected chains of transmission that were spilling into hospitals, and we had no way of knowing what was who was infected and who wasn't. So I do think you have to look at the fact that the, the task force was formed kind of after there had been inaction. The task force there, there were, and the CDC basically completely sidelined in January and February and people like Nancy Massonier from the CDC basically being silenced because they started talking about a pandemic. So it, it, it became a need for someone like Dr. Fauci to step forward because the president basically undermined his own CDC and basically put them in the back seat and, and, basically made them unable to do the job that they were constituted to do. I mean, that's still happening right now. The CDC is still not leading. Dr. Ramesh Adalja, senior scholar, Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. Doctor, thanks. The big holidays are coming up, Thanksgiving and Christmas. That's when lots of people travel usually to visit friends and family. People working on ways to try and do this safely. Cindy Richards, editor-in-chief of TravelingMom.com, explains to WBBM's Jennifer Kuyper about uh, what exactly people are trying to do. Everybody wants to hug grandma and, and, well, most people want to see the family anyway. So it's, you know, it's got to start with a really tough conversation, which is always, is hard in some families. But you've got to make it clear what you're comfortable with. And, you know, it's not a time when you should be trying to talk, you know, Uncle George to come into the family dinner if he doesn't feel like he, you know, it would be safe for him. What do you do to con- if you want to convince somebody I'm healthy, I, I'm not a carrier. I mean, do you go get tested before you go home? 
Well, I think, yeah, getting tested and quarantining. Quarantining is really the answer. You know, we're going to be going to Detroit where my kids live and we're going there for uh, Thanksgiving. And we've had a long conversation about it. And, you know, they're young adults. They're out and about. And we agreed that they're going to stop doing that for 14 days before we come, as are we. We're all going to get tested and, uh, you know, and then really lock it down for 14 days so that we feel comfortable when we're all together because it's, you know, it's outside your pandemic pod, right? And, and Cindy, have you looked ahead at and to see what's going on in Michigan with their situation? Uh, yeah, that's a really important piece of it, right? You've always, and, and it's a moving target because just because it's okay now doesn't mean it will be okay by Thanksgiving. So you have to know what are the rules in your state? What are rules in the state that you're going to visit? Do they require a 14-day um, quarantine upon arrival? That could mean you missed Thanksgiving altogether, right? Um, or do you have to have a 14-day quarantine when you get home, which you have to make sure you can do your job remotely then if you have to stay home for two weeks just because you wanted to go have Thanksgiving dinner with somebody? How about creative ways to get together? I mean, I had to go to see some friends recently, and we had a bonfire and had hot dogs outside, but it was beautiful weather. It's going to get a bit colder, but so that's not the most ideal situation. But anything that you've seen that has been pretty creative? Well, it's, yeah, it's so much easier for people who live in the South, right, than it's going to be for us. But, you know, the CDC has guidelines for this, and they, see th- they say things like, you know, even if you have to be inside, keep it short. So, you know, don't make it a whole day where you start in the morning watching the parade and, you know, you end up at night leaving to go get the early sales in Black Friday. You want to do a couple of hours and then go and keep the windows open as much as you can if you have to be inside. And honestly, you know, it's it, unless somebody in your group is too frail to be outside in the cold, which probably means they're too frail to be, you know, risking um, COVID. But if you can do it, do it on the back porch, even if it means you got to keep your coat on. And because the more you can be outside, the more you can be in the air, the more you can stay social distance, wear your mask, all the things that we've been hearing about for months and months, the CDC says it's going to be safer for you. Cindy, we always think big when we think holidays. This probably sounds like it might be the good time to think small and maybe smaller, it, fewer, more gatherings than just one. Absolutely. And and in every gathering, you've got to have the tough conversations. Do you feel safe? What are you going to do to make sure everybody stays safe? And, uh, you know, and then maybe you say, we'll do it better next year. And are you driving or flying over to Michigan? Uh, we're driving, you know, road trips are the way to go in 2020. And are you have any concerns about stopping along the way? Well, it's not that far. You know, it's only five hours. So I think we can make that in one in one drive. But, you know, my dad's going to be leaving for Florida soon. And I'm very concerned about how they're going to do it. They're trying to figure out where they'll stay and talking about taking their own sheets and pillowcases to put on the hotel beds. Uh, you know, what they're going to clean. We have a whole story on TravelingMom.com about what to clean in a hotel room to say to keep yourself safer. So there are ways to do it. You just, you can't, you got to think about everything these days before you travel. That's Cindy Richards, editor-in-chief of TravelingMom.com. If you think the virus was bad the first time, it could be even worse the second time around. A 25-year-old man in Nevada is believed to be the first person in the U.S., to become infected with COVID-19 twice. Researchers say in the Lancet Infectious Disease Journal that the man tested positive April the 18th, had symptoms. He had two negative tests in May before testing positive again on June 5th. Researchers say his second infection had even worse symptoms. The two viral agents in the man's system were genetically distinct. 
So it's unclear if the man was ever immune to the virus or how long immunity would have lasted. Researchers say the possibility of reinfection is still not particularly well understood. I will just opt to get it zero times. Let's yes. go with that, yeah. right? You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening.